Breaking news. All right, Rapscallions, it's time for another COVID update. It is the morning of December 21st, 2021. Important to time stamp this because this is changing so quickly. I'm here with the Swami and uh, we haven't done one of these for a little bit because things were sort of calm. And then, of course, Omicron comes along. Yeah, and Mel, we were really doing a lot in the beginning in terms of like management of the acute patient in front of us and not that much has changed in terms of the acute management of the patient in front of us, but obviously there's a lot that's changed over the last couple of months. So um, let's dive in. And uh, I don't know, there's this Omicron thing that people are talking about. Should we should we start there? Yeah, it's, you know, I find this morbidly fascinating to watch sort of just the math of this. So let's talk about the numbers game. Let's talk about the number of cases. And we have to be really careful. And hopefully as we get through this, we can focus people again on what really matters, which is severe disease. And talking about cases really scares people. Um, but cases that are mild to moderate, we don't care about. We care about severe cases. But uh, the Omicron variant appears to be, in these early days, about twice as infectious as the Delta variant. And if it is replicating, doubling every three days or so, you know, in the UK, it looks like it's every two days. In South Africa, it looks like every three days. In a month, therefore, it's two to the sixth. I can get 64 replication cycles, more than you otherwise would with the Delta variant. So you're going to have this enormous spike in cases. This is what's really concerning, right? What they found in South Africa, though, as it went, if you look at the graphs, it does this, not a hockey stick, it goes straight up. If you look at the number of cases, it's really terrifying what's going to happen here in the U.S. in the next few weeks. But if you look at the number of really sick patients, they didn't see that in South Africa. We don't have the data from England yet, but that's the thing we should be really focusing on. It appears in South Africa, and again, the data may not be perfect, that because of prior infection, because of vaccinations, you didn't see the same giant jump in severe cases. It will take us some time to see what happens in England. But remembering you've got this big lag from you know, when you have a spike in cases to when you start seeing deaths is often you know, four weeks lag there. Certainly the concern is, from a public health point of view, if you have an incredible increase in the number of cases, even if it was half as bad as Delta, you're still going to see an overwhelming number of cases. So the hope is that it's actually much less than half as infectious because of prior infection because of vaccination. But there is one thing that is true for the unvaccinated. This could be a catastrophe. I mean, it's bad with Delta, but if you're unvaccinated and it's so much more infectious in the next month, you're going to see basically every unvaccinated person get infected. And then a month after that, you're going to see all the deaths and hospitalizations. And there's these interesting things within here that, you know, prior infection, unless it's very recent prior infection, probably doesn't give you a lot of infection-based immunity against Omicron. So you're going to see lots of breakthroughs in that group. And like you said, you can kind of split them up. If you're unvaccinated, haven't had a recent infection, Omicron's probably going to be just as severe as Delta was. If you're vaccinated, but maybe not boosted, or if you had a recent infection, Omicron probably won't be too bad. And then if you have that group that is vaccinated and boosted or vaccinated and had a recent infection, you'll probably get the sniffles. And, and I have a couple of friends who are physicians who have had breakthrough cases and they're like, well, I don't feel great and I'm going to be locked down at home, but I'm not overwhelmingly sick. And that's kind of what we're hoping. But it's really important for us to stress that we don't think Omicron is less deadly in and of itself. We think it's less deadly because of the amount of immunity that we have generated over the last two years. We won't really know until after the event. So people get angry at the public health people but right now, it's a question of which way should they get it wrong? Should they say, don't worry about it, just do your normal things? And then when it turns out, oh my gosh, this is actually quite bad. 
or do you try and lock things down, slow the curve, flatten it while we work out just how bad this is? Because if it is a huge number of cases, but not so severe, that's great. But what if it's a huge number of cases, like you say, and in unvaccinated patients, and even in unvaccinated patients who have had prior infection, there's a huge mortality? Who wants to be responsible for that disaster? So that's why... Which way would you like them to get it wrong? Yeah, um, absolutely. It's really concerning. So um, I quote some data in the written notes that you can see with this about the UK transmissibility, and it basically looks like about twice as infectious. And so therefore, if it's replicating fast, you have these huge numbers. And again, here in the US, we've just got data yesterday on the 20th that on December 11th, the percentage of cases caused by Omicron was 12%. One week later, but the percentage of cases caused by Omicron 75% in one week. And so that means by next week in the US, pretty much 100% of the cases will be Omicron. Yeah. And, and Mel, you know, the other thing that is really important to stress in there is the volume of patients, like you said. Even if people aren't sick, the hospitals are pretty overwhelmed. I'll tell you that at my place, uh, we've got 60 in the waiting room at all times, very long wait times. And that is universal across all of uh, the Northeast, uh, across much of that, you know, Minnesota, Michigan, Ohio area. And as Omicron starts to spread out west and south, you're going to see the same thing there. So Mel, you know, my friends from college, none of them are physicians. They're all asking me, what should I be doing right now? I said, here's what you need to do. Wear your seatbelt, wear your helmet. Don't play with power tools. Don't go on the roof. Don't go ice skating because we don't have room to take care of regular <laughs> stuff with all of the Omicron that we have. And, and that doesn't even take into account the 20% of healthcare workers who have left healthcare over the last two years. We, we're just short-staffed. We don't have room for people. So uh, protect yourself. Don't get injured. Actually, that is an incredibly important point. You can get fooled by this pandemic. When you walk outside, you're like, where are all the dead bodies? It's only until you go into the hospital that you realize that they're completely overwhelmed. And so I say the same thing to my buddies. Not a good time to get into a car accident right now. Uh, the wait time is going to be quite long. It's hard to see, even despite what we're saying about vaccinations and boosters, that with such a huge number of people getting infected, even if it's a small percent that get really sick, that the already overwhelmed healthcare system isn't going to be overwhelmed even more. So be careful out there. Let's talk about antibody therapy evasion. So we've had all these antibody therapies, and it looks like, again, this is sort of modeling, looking at what the proteins look like. Most of the experts are saying that most of the antibody therapies are probably not going to work for Omicron. There might be one or two that do, but I've got a couple of references that you can check, but they're going to have to refactor these things. So that's not going to save us from a huge outburst of uh, this disorder. And Mel, a lot of places have already stopped using the antibody therapies that we have stocked. We don't have a lot in stock anyway, but we've been advised they don't work against Omicron. Stop giving them. There is one MAB that we have, Citrovimab, which I've never seen in my hospital. And the reason you don't see it is because the federal government is stockpiling whatever is left of that, that monoclonal antibody to save it for when Omicron is really going out of control. But there's not a lot of doses of that around. We haven't ramped up production, so we cannot count on uh, these monoclonal antibodies to come to the rescue. Yeah, and I don't think that even if they go and try and refactor these things, it'll be too late. Because this is so infectious, we're going to see this huge blip. Everybody's going to get infected and it's going to go away. By the time you get these antibodies, uh, we'll be like, oh yeah, been there, done that. Everybody's been infected anyway. In terms of mRNA dosing, so right now it's considered you're fully vaccinated with two doses. I should shout out to This Week in Virology. If you really want to know about this from the experts, listen to that every single week. So they're sitting around saying that 
Right now, they think, many of the experts there, that two doses is enough to stop severe disease, that this three-dose thing really is to prevent more mild disease and infectivity. But because of the way your immune system works, two doses is probably enough for Omicron. Three doses reduces that chance even more. So right now, two doses is considered fully vaccinated. But it has been true with other vaccines in the past that really you need, you know, six months or more between doses to really have your immune system ramp up. So it might be that in the future, we might realize, well, you should have one dose of mRNA vaccine now and one six months later, and then you're fully vaccinated. We don't know. So again, which way do you want me to get it wrong? I'd rather over-vaccinate a few people with three doses. But the key thing is make sure you at least have two doses. And I'm talking to the 100 million Americans who have not had two doses. That's the group we really need to get to. And of course, we've said it before, we should say it again. We need the entire world vaccinated so we don't continue to get more variants. So we should all be on board with sending as much vaccine to low and middle income countries as possible. And for the healthcare workers out there, lots of questions about boosting. It makes sense for healthcare workers to get boosted because we are exposed over and over again. And with how strapped healthcare worker numbers are, how unstaffed we are in our hospitals, missing time is really a hard thing. So Mel, I, I finally came around and got my booster about two weeks ago, not because I think it's going to give me this, this huge amount of protection against severe disease that I need, but because I can't miss time. Now, the interesting thing on the other side of that is getting boosted. A lot of the experts are saying, well, you get boosted and then you might only have about six to seven weeks where those antibodies are super high and preventing any infection from Omicron. And that might already start to wane. So some of my healthcare colleagues who got boosted right away when they became eligible or he might be on the tail end of that. And people are already talking about a fourth dose. So they need to get boosted again. So we don't know if we should be boosting again or when we should be boosting again. But for the healthcare workers, it is really important for us to protect ourselves so that we can continue to work. We continue to provide that care. And we just don't know what the best thing is. But like I said, I think we should all be getting boosted if you're working in healthcare to keep you working and, and keep that infection out. All right, let's talk about some therapeutics then. Let's first talk about azithromycin. There's a big meta-analysis, 16 studies, five randomized control trials were in this, 11 observational studies, over 22,000, nearly 23,000 patients, and basically showed no difference in mortality, no difference in admission rates. So that's as a routine kind of thing. Swami, what do you do when you've got that really, really sick COVID patient who's got pneumonia all through their lungs, and normally in normal times you'd go, oh, it's probably viral, but I'm going to cover for bacterial just in case. What do you do? With how we're seeing the surges of, of everybody getting exposed to COVID at this point, we're really not doing antibiotics. And, and we found this through the first surge when we were like, well, maybe there's a bacterial super infection. We gave them antibiotics. We're like, no, nah, that really didn't make any difference. And so we're not giving it to this group of patients. Obviously, there are exceptions like the COPD -er who comes in like, I don't know, they, they could have a COPD exacerbation with a bacterial component. That might be a little bit different. But for the run of the mill patient with COVID pneumonia, we're not giving antibiotics at this point. We really don't think there's much of a benefit. Yeah, there's got to be something sort of else on that chest x-ray or that history that pushes you there. It doesn't seem to help. So let's talk about high-flow oxygen, another randomized open-label study in JAMA. 220 adult patients with respiratory distress, mean age of about 60, randomized to receive normal-flow oxygen nasally versus high-flow, and they looked at the need for intubation, and they found, guess what? High-flow oxygen worked. Significant reduction. 34% in the high-flow group got tubed, 51% in the nasal cannula, and a shorter time to recovery if you received high-flow oxygen. So I think I think we already know this, but it's good to see it in a study. Yeah, we are definitely using a lot of high flow. We definitely ramped that up last year. We've got lots of those units around. And uh, I think it's actually after the pandemic is really going to change how we treat some respiratory distress because we find a lot of benefit with that high flow. So it'll be interesting to see how this continues to be used whenever it is that we get out of this pandemic. 
Let's talk about anticoagulation because you've spoken about this on the program a lot, like the super therapeutic anticoagulation. These people are very clotty. That didn't work. But in the New England Journal in August, there was a randomized trial of sort of standard anticoagulation versus sort of prophylactic anticoagulation in non-critically ill patients. So people who didn't have end organ damage yet, but were sick enough to come into the hospital, they gave them sort of a full dose of anticoagulant versus just prophylactic. And they found that there was a significant reduction in progression to badness in your organs. Number needed to treat of around 20 to 25, which is pretty good. Number needed to bleed, a major bleeding episode for every 100 people you treated. So they concluded in non-critically ill patients with COVID-19, an initial strategy of therapeutic dose anticoagulation with heparin increased the probability of survival to hospital discharge with reduced use of cardiovascular and respiratory organ support as compared with usual care thromboprophylaxis. And I think that that it was interesting because we thought it'd be better for the critically ill this group, and it was a, a number of different platforms that kind of pooled their resources, got together and did this, didn't really find much benefit in the critically ill. We also had the results just recently from the hep COVID trial that was in JAMA Internal Medicine, and it kind of echoes exactly what was seen here. There was a benefit overall, but there wasn't any benefit in the really critically ill patients. So I think we have to consider this in the patient who needs oxygen, needs to be admitted to the hospital, isn't going to the ICU, isn't critically ill. Should we be giving them full-dose anticoagulation? And Mel, what what I have uh, kind of gleaned from talking to our intensivists, our pulmonologists, our hematologists, is just weigh the benefits out. If it's a low-risk person for bleed and they're non-critically ill, they're recommending to go with therapeutic doses of anticoagulants. But if they have a little bit have a higher risk of bleed and they're saying, you know what, let's just go with prophylactic dose for now. And that's probably the way to go. The last thing to add on this is there was the Michelle study, which was in Lancet just about a week and a half ago. This was looking at outpatient treatment after patients were discharged from the hospital. And they did find some benefits in that group. So if you were admitted to the hospital, especially if you were very ill and now you're going home, you should be on anticoagulation for some period of time. So don't be I guess, surprised if you're seeing patients come back after a COVID stint in the hospital and they're still on anticoagulation, they're probably going to be on a DOAC if they're on something. But I think this is going to be seen more and more. You've got some other notes here about some therapeutics. Let's jump to those before I talk about vaccines in kids. Yeah, just a couple of notes. So remdesivir, obviously one of the darlings early on in COVID. Uh, The WHO study that came out, I don't know, maybe eight months ago, really didn't show any benefit, but that didn't really bury remdesivir in spite of that being a pretty well done large trial. But now we have the discovery trial, which also does not show any benefit for remdesivir. And that was a really well done randomized control trial. So I think at this point, while your hospitalist may still be giving remdesivir, there doesn't really seem to be any benefit to that drug in hospitalized patients with COVID. Fluvoxamine is another one in the non-hospitalized patients that we've been looking at recently. There's some promising data here. It's a cheap drug. I've never prescribed fluvoxamine myself, but it's been around for a very long time, easy to get. I think we need more data before we really dive into that, but that might be something down the line. There's a couple for critically ill that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, Tocilizumab, which is an IL-6 inhibitor, when added to steroids, seems to have a significant benefit in critically ill patients. Baricitinib, which is a JAK inhibitor, there seems to be a signal for mortality benefit, but the studies weren't powered for that benefit. But still, I think there's a benefit there. You'll probably see your intensivist giving tocilizumab and baricitinib if they happen to have any lying around. Uh, that's one of the issues here, of course, is there's not a lot of these drugs. And then lastly, high-dose steroids versus normal-dose steroids. We've known since recovery, steroids for any patient who needs oxygen. But now we've got a study looking at a higher dose, 12 milligrams versus six in the critically ill. 
And it seems that 12 milligrams might have a benefit, again, a mortality benefit, actually a pretty good mortality benefit, about 5%, but that wasn't what the study was designed to do. And the question that kind of comes up is, should we give high-dose steroids and tocilizumab together? That's what the intensivists are kind of banding around about, or should we do one or the other? Um, but this is another thing to think about. I think what I would say is that if you don't have tocilizumab or baricitinib, you've got a critically ill COVID patient go ahead and give them 12 milligrams of dexamethasone instead of six milligrams. That's what I'm seeing many of the intensivists start to argue for. And don't be surprised again, if you give them the six and you admit them to the ICU and then the intensivist is like, mm, I'm going to give them another six. Don't be surprised. That's not coming out of nowhere. It's coming out of these studies. So higher dose steroids might have a little bit of a benefit. But Mel, aside from that, there's not a lot on therapeutics. There's those antiviral pills that don't have an EUA in the US yet. And the short of the long on those is they seem to help uh, preventing hospitalizations, but they have to be taken really, really early. And we don't have a good system in the US for getting people diagnosed very early, getting them to a doctor, getting these prescribed and getting them the med. So I'm not sure that they're gonna have much of an impact in the US. And from what the um, infectious disease and virologists that I've talked to are saying, even if the EUA UA came out tomorrow. We don't have enough doses of these medications to really have enough of an impact right away. So don't think that that is around the corner and is going to be something that we're going to be able to use to help. Yeah, I think it's uh, the total number of doses is something like 10 million for some of these new specifically antiviral agents, which look like they work really well. And the manufacturers at least are saying there's no reason uh, that they shouldn't work for Omicron because the targets are different than the spike protein, which is where Omicron's really different. So even though they might work well, like you say, we probably won't have enough of them. So it's not a game changer. So let's go back to vaccinations and the somewhat confusing data from children, but I don't think it's actually that confusing. So Pfizer had a press release again. This is a press release. This is not data. We've got to get the data. We've got to look at it. But it was for six months to five years. And under five years, they were using three micrograms. So remember that in an adult, they're using 30 micrograms. So in the six months to five-year age group, they use three micrograms. And they found in the little kids that it worked, in the six months to sort of two years, but in the two to five year age group, it looks like they had an inadequate response. And so they're ongoing trials and they're going to add a third dose later on. But this may simply be that three micrograms is simply not enough when you're a bigger kid. Not that there's something magically weird about kids in that age group. So the studies are ongoing. No doubt there'll be studies with the larger doses. But right now, the two to five age group, inadequate response from two doses of the vaccine. There were no safety concerns. So that's Good. And I really feel for the parents of young kids because they have been left out of vaccines to this point. They've kind of been hoping for these trials to to show something. At the same time, I, I am happy that we are taking our time and doing this right and figuring out the right dose. Uh, and hopefully just going up a little bit will be enough to get that response. And we'll see that soon, hopefully. But this is worrisome only because it's a huge group of kids that still can't get vaccinated. So let me just summarize again this Omicron thing, because there's going to be a lot of hysteria about the number of cases. You're going to see a truly, it's been called like a tsunami of cases. This is very infectious. And because of that, it's going to double and double again and double again and double again. What you really need to be focused on is the number of patients with severe disease. We are hoping that fully vaccinated patients and fully vaccinated patients who've had prior COVID are not going to get severe disease. It looks like that from the preliminary data. We will need a little bit more time from England to find out what happens there. So focus on the severe cases, but do the right thing. Wear your seatbelt, uh, don't play with knives, get fully vaccinated, have your friends that are on the fence about vaccination, have a discussion with them, point them at This Week in Virology, this podcast, whatever, because there are those people that are on the fence 
that you can you know push off the fence and get vaccinated. Those people who truly just think this is all a conspiracy theory, very difficult to move that group. For those of your friends that you can push over the fence to get them vaccinated, now is the time, like immediately, today, go start your vaccination series. That is your best protection for what is coming. And even if you are vaccinated and boosted, now is the time, if you haven't done it, to switch over to N95 masks when you're in public spaces. That is probably going to help to reduce your chance. It's going to markedly help, actually, to reduce your chance. So, you know, grab a couple N95s. There's lots of them around now. It's, it's a little bit easier to get. There are some reliable resources where to get good masks. But Mel, I have completely switched over. Uh, I went to a, a kid's concert last night. Not a lot of people, but it was an indoor space. So I've got an N95 mask on. That is the way to go. I think the cloth masks are okay but they're not great. So uh, a little bit of a, uh, an extra layer of protection with a good, well-fitting N95 mask. Yeah, good for you and good for the people that you potentially could infect because I think, frankly, that almost all of us are going to get this virus at this point. It's so infectious. The vast majority of us are going to have a mild disease. But if you can slow the spread down a little bit by wearing a better mask for the person who isn't vaccinated or is immune compromised, you're doing the right public health thing, helping yourself and helping those around you. All right, Swami, I don't know when we'll do another update. We're headed into the sort of the holiday time, so it probably won't be till early next year unless something major happens, in which case we will be back on the blower. So have a great new year and Christmas and whatever else you celebrate out there. And uh, we'll talk to you in the new year. What do you, what do you plan, Swami? You got big plans? You're going out uh, rocking without your mask and, and drinking heavily and breathing on any of the other people? What's your plan? Yeah, we're going to have a thousand people indoors, unmasked for the Now, we're, we're, we're having family over and uh, Mel, everyone's doing a rapid test before they come in the house. So we're, we're going to have a small group together, everybody getting a rapid test right before we gather and everybody is fully vaccinated and every and eligible is also boosted. We're still going to do the rapid test to keep everybody safe. Look at you. You're so conservative. We're getting together. Everybody's <laughs> vaccinated. Everybody's boosted. We're not testing. It's like... Yeah, if we get it, we're going to have mild disease, whatever. <laughs> well, you guys are in L.A. You can just do it outdoors anyway. There's no reason it's to be true. inside. It's yeah, 20 it's like degrees 65. here. <laughs> we can't do outdoors anymore. All jokes aside, I think the testing is good if you do have somebody in your household or one of the contacts that is at particularly high risk. I think, you know, for me, for all of us that are going to be gathering, we're not at high risk. We're all vaccinated. We're all boosted. So we are not going to test for that specific situation. But there are times when that is also an additional thing you might want to do. Talk to you soon. All right, later. Thank you.